Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferencecom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is episode number 27. Got a great conversation coming at you today. Our guest this week actually came prepared with a list of things that somebody starting out in music should focus on. He surprised me at the end of the show with it, so definitely stick around for that. Let's get into this opening. The music industry is a challenging business to dive into, and it's going to require you to put in a lot of hard work. You're going to have to learn new skills, perfect your craft, overcome obstacles, and never be discouraged by setbacks. You need drive. The kind of drive that results in unstoppable work ethic, blind to the world around you. You need to drive towards your objectives with tunnel vision. You have to be zoomed in on what you want and putting all of your energy into that one thing. Your work will have to be the center of your return. Okay, so everything I just said was not about drive. It was about focus. Tunnel vision. Blind to the world around you. Zoomed in on what you want. Success is not about drive and outworking the next person. Oh, I'm going to get some flack for that one for sure. It's about focus. I started this podcast not because I'm super successful and I'm trying to sell you on my path to success. No, that's not it. I started this podcast because I think I made a bunch of mistakes along the way, and I want you to be able to learn from my experience and skip a few of them. So what this open is really about is focus versus drive. Let's start with drive, because I've got to go back and clarify, when I said this business is not about outworking everyone else, oh, said it again. Look, nobody successful at anything doesn't have drive and doesn't try to outwork their peers and their competitors. Having drive is basically implied. If you want success, then you have to have drive, and you should want to outwork everyone. If you don't have drive for what you're doing, I don't want to be harsh, but you're doing the wrong thing. You need to find whatever career gives you that drive to beat everybody else. Okay, so if everybody finds the career path that drives them, then success can't be determined purely by outworking everyone. There must be another factor that comes into play. Otherwise, everyone would be successful, right? And there is. It's focus. Focus is what will separate you from the pack and push you towards success. See, if you're determined to outwork people and you know where to put that energy, now you're unstoppable. Think about it for a minute. You can't build a skyscraper by piling steel beams on top of each other as fast as you possibly can. It'll fall over. You've got to have a plan and a focus so that you know what work needs to be done so that the building stays up. Without focus and a plan, you're just expelling energy and doing work. 
And here's the danger of focusing on drive instead of driving with focus. You can have a career that way. You can make a living. And it can take a long time to realize that you've been stuck on a plateau. I should know. I spent a good part of my career focused on outworking everyone, doing every gig I could get, working the longest days I could, missing birthdays and events, whatever. Name a badge of honor for outworking people, and I wore it. I put all that work in, and I still sat there one day and thought, what am I doing? I'm not making any progress. It's because I didn't have focus. I hadn't defined what success was for me and what my future goals were. I was just working as hard as I possibly could and waiting for my career to happen to me as a reward for my relentless drive. I looked around and I saw other people getting more successful and making breakthroughs. And I sat there and I swore that there was no way that they were outworking me. It wasn't possible. I was sacrificing everything to work. Maybe they were outworking me. Maybe not. It doesn't matter. What matters is that they had focused their energy in on a goal. They had a target. Their hard work was getting focused into their objectives. Mine was being expelled into the universe at random. So learn from my experiences. Don't focus on having drive. If you're doing what you're meant to do, then you'll have drive. Instead, focus your drive. Target it at your goals and your aspirations, and that is what will drive you towards success. Today's guest is the multi-platinum awarded producer, mixer, and musician, Bill Appleberry. Bill's credits as an engineer, producer, and player make an impressive list, including names like Stone Temple Pilots, The Wallflowers, Puddle of Mud, Joe Walsh, Macy Gray, Praz, Hole, and 311. And that's before you include his work for Republic Records and NBC's hit TV show, The Voice. Bill has produced and mixed the studio-recorded versions of every song performed by every artist for every season of the show. 19 seasons and still running. He and his team accomplished the epic feat of turning around hundreds of songs per season. I've met few people who can rival his work ethic and dedication to a project. So welcome to the show, Bill Appleberry. What's up, Bill? Hey, Travis. How you doing, man? Good, good. It's been a while. It has been a little while. It's nice to see you, talk to you. I know, I know. How are things? Things are good, you know, under the circumstances. I feel like uh, it's been a crazy ride for everybody last year, but we're healthy, we're good, we're, we're moving forward. Nice. That's uh, and still yeah. getting to make music. That's all you can ask for these days. Is absolutely, absolutely. Working and being healthy and being happy. So that's great. Yeah. Most people probably don't know this, but I met you working for you on your epic team of people that turn around this crazy <laughs> feat. Yeah, many years ago. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a bit ago. It was good good times, long days in the studio. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I wanted to tell people exactly how much work goes into what you're doing on on that side of of the show. You guys can turn around like 10 to 14 songs in basically 3 days at times when things get crazy, right? Uh yeah, I mean, I, we would cap it out at 12 songs a day. But when <laughs> things really get going, you know, that, that was pretty much the most of it is, is 12 songs. But, you know, dealing with TV, obviously, you, you have to deal with deadlines. We have a very short amount of time to grab all the content we need and then a very short amount of time to turn it around and deliver. So, yeah, we were basically making a full-length album in 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> I remember walking in. Uh, I was filling in for somebody and just kind of watching that first weekend of what everybody was doing and being told like, 
now you take the hard drive to this studio and then this person's going to do this and then you need to do this. And then as soon as you're done with that, you need to take it down to this studio. You're talking about like working multiple people, multiple rooms, just, I think just the craziest shit that I think I've ever been a part of. So uh, props for doing that for 19 seasons <laughs> and, stay, and staying alive. Going on 20. Yeah, we're actually, this is our 10th year. 10 years. You would have never, it's one of those things, man. I, you know, you answer the phone and this opportunity presented itself and you, no one had any idea what it was going to be at the time. So, you know, here we are 10 years later. Right. 3,500 songs later, you know what I mean? So in hindsight, I mean, it's, was a, it's an amazing opportunity. Very grateful for it, obviously. But uh, it, yeah, yeah, it took us a while to figure out how to do it. Once we figured out what we were doing, you know, right. still don't know if we really know what we're doing actually <laughs> at the end of the day. But yeah, we, we, we'd approach it, as you know, and we approached it just like we'd make any other record. We're all record makers on this side of the team. Uh, we just happened to align with a TV show, you know, through Republic Records, obviously, but they were selling the studio recorded versions of every performance. We would take that performance and take it into the studio with you know, the house band and that contestant, and we would make a record out of it in a very short amount of time and turn it around. And as you would watch the show during the live rounds, uh, you would be able to go to iTunes at that point in time and download that song, which would also, you know, interestingly enough, in the early years would count as a vote and things just kind of worked as this big machine, you know, to move some singles and accumulate votes. It was pretty fascinating. It is. And I think that that level of... Um of interaction with the with the viewer, I think really keeps people engaged in a show like that. Like knowing that you can buy the single, the studio version of your favorite person, and then that counts as a vote. That was a great move. Whoever came up with that one, it was good. Good thought. I want to go back to the beginning. We'll we'll go through like your early career, how you got to where you are now. But what was that phone call like when somebody described to you the voice gig? Did you have that like gut reaction of, yeah, I can do that, and then hang up the phone and be like, holy shit, how am I going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first part of it was just like a reconnaissance. It was like trying to gather as much information as possible because I even think from the record company side, they really didn't even know it. So the kind of how what was interesting about it was I was camped out at a at um, a place called Bomb Shelter, which was Eric Kretz's place, a drummer at Stone Temple Pilots. And I was camped out there for a good year and a half to two years. A year, which we spent on the last STP record uh, with Scott, full band. And then another year after that, doing other stuff, Puddle of Mud, certain projects here and there. But I was, that was pretty much my spot for a good two years. It was right downtown in L.A. And during that time, towards the end of that, right at, towards the end of the Puddle of Mud record, you know, someone called the studio. Right? And it was a one-room place. It was very good size. It was in a big, like, kind of warehouse type of place. Very cool. It had a 56-input SSL. It was hip. And uh, phone rang, and, and my assistant at the time came and said, hey, I got this phone call of this guy looking for a big room and wants somebody that really knows the room, needs somebody that is comfortable and knows the room. And I'm like, all right, well, I've been here for a while. You know, I... I know the room. <laughs> Sounds know? like me. I know the room. So give me the number. I'll follow through. So I call the guy back. It was Tom McKay from Republic. And he said, yeah, yeah, nice to meet you. And then we found out that my manager at the time, they know each other. And there's a whole thing. So, so I started getting into the run of this project, 
which he said is a show called The Voice. They're filming downtown. We need a big enough room that we can bring the band and multiple people in, plus cameras, plus doing reality, plus recording. It was a big, a big thing. And this is what we're trying to do. And he said, I'll tell you right now, because immediately I was like, sure, I can help you. You know, <laughs> what else was I going to say? Right. Right. Uh, he said, well, I'll tell you right now, I'm looking at three other producers as well. So I'm just shopping. And I'm like, perfect. No problem. I understand. Right. I've been through this game a hundred times. Um, at that time, he was the senior vice president, I believe, of A&R uh, for Republic. And he was based in New York at that time as well. So we go through the whole thing, got the phone calls, a couple days go by, you know, we kind of get into it. I start gathering as much information as I can. I think initially it's season one. At that point, it was in March 2011. I think we were looking at about 60 songs at that point. And, uh, and that was a lot, you know, for the amount of time we had to do it in. And he said, well, everybody else is telling me, the other producers I'm talking to, they could do it with a four-man team. And I said, well, I could do it with three. So I think I ended up, you know, <laughs> so I was like, oh, man, I was talking to my one of my chief engineers. I was like, what did I just get ourselves into, you know? So we sat down and we just really tried to figure out it because it, it, it came down to, okay, you're shuttling through 12 singers in a day, you know? Right. How much time are we going to allot per singer? How much, you know, it really became a math equation of, you know, we need to kind of treat this like, kind of like a doctor's office, like everybody needs to be on a schedule and it just needs to be kind of wrangled in, you know? So I did all the vocal tracking and band tracking at that point at myself and then uh, all the vocal comping and then uh, had another engineer that would take care of all the comping stuff, music comping, band comping, and then a third guy was just tuning. Right. And then I would end up mixing it. And then, and so... That's kind of how the thing started, and it was, it was kind of learn as you go, you know. I mean, obviously, the the initial part of it was just we were pulling our hair out. It's like we have a fifty six input SSL plus we rented an additional twenty four mic pre's. We were completely loaded. I mean, we had every input on that board operating at the time, and uh, we got through it. We learned a lot, and then we got through it. And I think I'm not sure what at what point did you come on? Were you at season one, end of season one, or season two? Like Maybe season three, actually. Three year or after. four. Yeah. Three or four. Yes. Yeah, okay. Like so that would have been a good year, year and a half after that point. So, you know, I mean, initially they were also filming while we were recording on our oh, set. Really? Oh, yeah. So basically, you know, uh, what were we going to do? We put splitters in there. They had a monitor guy in the live room, plus the full band set up. We wanted to get our stuff in record quality from what we were used to they were trying to just record themselves like a live tv setup so we ended up initially ended up splitting real estate we couldn't really we didn't really want to use the microphones that they were using we wanted to use our own oh yeah class a stuff so we decided you know what let's just split the real estate let's not even put a splitter in it you guys find your location on the kick drum we'll work around you you know we'll split the toms you know what i mean that's kind of how we did it and oh, uh, you take from us what you want. And and we even had two cabinets for the guitar. We had to just unplug it. They had one cabinet they'd mic for themselves. We had the other cabinet we'd keep for us. So when they brought these cameras in, and then when, you know, the, the coaches would come in and the kids, they would all be inside the live room. So all that would have to be mic'd up and monitored correctly so everybody could hear. And then once that was finished, 
we'd have to have a quick changeover to where we were recording as we would record a record. So that's pretty much how we decided to do it. And it did work for a while until we got evolved to a point where, you know, reality actually ended up going to a whole other facility. And so now we were just on our own. And I think at that point you were involved. I think, were we still doing reality in the same room at that point, season three, season four? No, very rarely, maybe depending on the schedules, maybe one day a season, there'd be right. stuff in the studio. But yeah, yeah it had separated by that point. I can't even imagine okay. that would be, I mean, that would be a nightmare to have to flip around that many songs and, and have- It was a technical oh, nightmare. Man. It was. I mean, and we, you know, obviously you can't go, okay, you guys put your own mics up and when you're done, we'll take your mics down, put our mics up. You know, we had to find a happy medium how to kind of merge the two things together. Yeah. With, and allowing each one of us, like from the record side and the TV side to really feel like they could do their job. So yeah, so I think splitting real estate on instruments was, you know, was the way to do it. And obviously with keyboards and stuff like that, I, you get off a little easier because, you know, you're on DI, so you can move that stuff pretty quickly, but. Yeah, I guess people should understand that you know, there's a there's a set amount of time to to get through these things. So you can only do so much recording. You know, and the band has rehearsed these songs. They're all definitely some of the best musicians I've ever seen in my life. And so you're talking about doing a couple takes a song for the band, a few takes a song for a singer, and then the comping aspect for anybody that doesn't know is when you kind of grab the best pieces of everybody and and you know make up for the fact that you can't spend four days recording something. In the beginning, did you guys did you guys ever run into a situation where you were recording over, you were like overanalyzing songs and doing more takes than, than we were doing it in the end? Uh, no, not really. I think just based on, because of the time frame that we had, we'd always keep it around three to four passes. I mean, sometimes, you know, listen, I, there was a couple of things that kind of played into this. One was initially the record company had said, do you want to bring in your own players? Which is all, obviously an option. I, thought that the only way to make this thing work efficiently, since they're putting so much pre-production and rehearsal time in, is you have to use the band. Oh, yeah. You know, you, you got to use the house band. And also because of TV, I mean, there's always these last minute changes that happen. How would you be able to stay on top of that? You yeah. know what I mean? Key mm -hmm. changes or tempo changes or even arrangement changes, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and you're right. They're one of the best bands in LA. I mean, they are incredible. And they can also change colors stylistically from song to song, which will blow your mind. Oh, you yeah. Know? I always tease them and say they're the best country band in LA. <laughs> 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 so, I, I, you know, the thing is, is back then, I think things just took us longer. I remember where 12 songs would take us 15, 16 hours to get the music, you know, where now we can efficiently put out 12 songs grab the content with the band in, you know, less than 12 hours. So I think we've gotten better yeah. at it. Hopefully, I over should 10 hope years. So. <laughs> yeah, over, after three, did you say 3,500 songs? Something around there, <laughs> yes. yeah. Mid threes. Yeah, mid know? threes. Is, I mean, has anybody yeah. checked? There's got to be a Guinness Book of World Records here. Is is there, is it possible? You guys have recorded yeah, the most I, songs I, ever? You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I, it's... Uh, I don't know. It's it's funny because you you know you look at your credit list. Uh, I forget what somebody sent me a website, and there's like 150 pages of you know <laughs> voice credits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of songs, and it's a lot of repeated songs too. Actually, and there's a lot of songs that we would you know we got to the point where we were kind of pulling our hair out. It's like if we ever have to do that song again, we're gonna you know murder somebody. But, <laughs> 
Well, there's some classic songs. Everybody needs to sing the classics. There is. You know? There is. Uh, there is. Let's get off the voice for a minute. Let's talk about all the other epic stuff you've done and how you started. Were you, you were a musician first, right? Uh, yes, and currently yeah. am. I, you know, I think it all started from there. Uh, for me, it did. You know, um, did the traditional play through high schools and jazz band, keyboard major, you know, so yeah. playing keyboards and jazz band and other things in high school. When I grew up, Southside Chicago in Illinois, it was common in the Midwest back in the 70s where like families would have organs in the house, you know? And so my grandparents had this organ. Uh, my grandmother had passed in the 70s and my grandfather basically gave the organ to us kids, my brothers and I, and just said, all right, you know, somebody learn how to play this thing. Um, <laughs> so it turned out that my brother actually started playing it and was taking lessons and I was just kind of hovering around and, and then I ended up jumping in after and then I just, I stuck with it. So I got the curse. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I played through that and, and then I, you know, played in high school and I just kind of played, I was taking organ lessons. It was kind of crazy. But the good thing about that for me was, you know, it taught me chords. Yeah. It wasn't like taking classical piano lessons, you know? Yeah. I've never have taken a classical piano lesson. But I would apply that same theory, obviously, to the piano. Now, on the organ, you have, you know, obviously two, two manuals, two keyboards. And, uh, and so, you know, I would play chords on the left hand and lead on the right hand. And then when I just transferred over to piano, obviously, the feel and everything was different. But, you know, with a little bit of practice, just kind of fell right into that. So right. that's why I say I'm a keyboard player, not necessarily a piano player. And then I, I, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Um, I don't know how, and I, I don't necessarily know why. I just enlisted in the Marine Corps. I auditioned for the music program. Um, I was playing a little bit of drums in high school as well. wasn't very good at it, you know, in comparison to some of my friends that were also playing. But I auditioned for the Marine Corps and actually uh, made it into their music program. And I went to boot camp, and then they sent me to the School of Music, which was in Little Creek, Virginia. It was 1985, showing my age. It was actually a very high, intense, really intense program that lasted a year. And it was taught under the Berkeley system, which is actually interesting. So uh, three out of the four armed services went to the same music school. So it was kind of commingled with, even though I was in the Marine Corps, I commingled with the Army and the Navy. Um, the Air Force, they had their own thing. So it was just those three branches. So that was pretty cool. I ended up transferring my major over to drums just because I was going to play percussion if I was taking a keyboard major. And I think there was better opportunity for me. They had said, we need drummers in the drum corps, so mm. you'd probably get a better duty station. So uh, I didn't test very high when I tested for that. So I had to dig in. I mean, I, I, I was digging in eight to 10 hours a day um, for a good year and wow. uh, and then tested pretty high, you know, not not super, super high, but high enough to where I can get my choice of duty station. And they ended up sending me to Washington, D.C., which was incredible. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out.
I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. That's cool. So, so how yeah. does that that work? You're, so you're stationed to be part of the band at that station? I am. So I was stationed in D.C., and I was in the Commandant Zone, which was the United States German Bugle Corps. We represented the entire Marine Corps in terms of like a unit. We were the the commandant of the Marine Corps is the four star general that's in charge of the Marine Corps, the entire Marine Corps, and he had his own drum corps. That was us. We had twenty one drummers, I oh, believe. Wow. I was one of them, and so we were stationed in downtown Washington D.C. and we would do all these ceremonial gigs and we would travel the world and and just play and represent the United States. Played in the White House when Reagan was in office, which was kind of hip. Cool and. Uh, yeah, and, and doing things like that. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, interestingly enough, I mean, applying to my career today or to my, even as a keyboard player, just being in that ensemble was just such an education for me in, in terms of, you know, teaching me rhythm and how to listen in an ensemble. Yeah. You know, how to it, it play in a band, so to speak, because playing in a drum corps, when you got 21 drummers who are all supposed to play as one, you know, <laughs> You have to listen and know how to listen. That's a practice. Oh yeah. So I I went through that. I put four years in the Marine Corps, and then um, and then I got out. And at that point, it was 1989, and you know I was just starting to get into MIDI and uh, and learning how to program, and just you know I just started recording, and I was writing stuff on the keyboard, and just starting to get into it. Just started learning about that, and uh, I didn't know anything about that stuff, you know. So it was interesting. And then uh, got out and, and started just really digging into it. That's cool. And did you, uh, were you freelance at that point or were you working at a studio? So I was freelance and uh, I met some folks who had just bought an SSL, 32 channel SSL in a studio in Falls Church, Virginia. And so I came in there and uh, at that point I was starting to do tracks and I was kind of fishing work out of there for a little bit. Yeah. And that, that that was great for me. By the time, it was 80, 1989, 90, by the time 92 hit, I had a song that I had did with this group called Shy that uh, this guy Carl Martin come in and, uh, you know, we were, we were doing stuff together and they, were, they had a small, they had an old MCI console I was working on in there and just, I didn't know really anything about engineering. I just would get some signal through and we were off and running, you know? I don't know if it sounded good or what, but... <laughs> It was what it was. It worked. It worked. We thought it sounded good, and that's really all that matters. Yeah. So anyway, we did the song, acapella song, and he had leaked a version to uh, Paco Lopez at PGC. He was at like a chili cook-off or something in downtown D.C. And Paco liked it, and he spun it, and it blew up. It went absolutely bananas, and it sold 3 million copies within 30 days. Oh, wow. And it was one of those things that... You know, you hear those stories like back in the day, like I spun it and the phone lines lit up. Well, that's exactly what happened. And I don't think anybody expected that. And I know I sure didn't. <laughs> so then what happened is they got th- that group shy ended up getting a record deal right away, obviously, with Gasoline Alley on MCA. And then, and then Gasoline Alley reached out and said, okay, well, well, you need to add music to that. So 
we ended up adding music to that and then right away re-recording the vocals and then putting that out. And so, yeah, so that took off. So that I was 24 at the time. I got out of the military when I was 22. That was two years later. I was 24. And that kind of catapulted me into this idea of, oh, maybe I should try to do this for a career. Yeah. <laughs> so it was pretty interesting. That I started out as a remixer in a lot of ways where we'd just get vocals and just add your own music to it. Okay. When that happened, did you feel like you were prepared to take advantage of that opportunity? Or once it landed, did you kind of reassess your situation and be like, okay, cool, I got to get good at this and good at this and I got to do this. I got to go to LA. I got to go to New York or whatever it is. Was it a quick moment of like, shift, take advantage, go? I didn't know how to take advantage of it at that point. I mean, I was, you know, I was all about, from a programming perspective, being a keyboard player, I was all about making tracks in terms of like, let's hip into the MPC 60 at that point. And, you know, I had the MIDI thing down pretty well at that point. So I was, like I said, doing tracks and stuff. I was able to record vocals. You know, I, I could get around the room from an engineering perspective to get my tracks recorded. Mixing, I wasn't mixing at that point in time. But yeah, I, you know, obviously, you know, it happened so fast. And I was playing in other bands at the time too. And here I got this studio thing that kind of took off. But I'm also playing in rock bands. So it's interesting. Life just kept throwing those opportunities from a studio production perspective into my lane. Right. And so obviously I kept gravitating towards some of that stuff. And it wasn't about the money. I didn't make much money at all on that hit, believe it or not, because there was no deal. There was no... This is like, you know, it happened so fast. It was all in a handshake, it, it, you know. You're, yeah. And when you're that young, you're not, you're not thinking about that stuff. But in hindsight, the, I mean, I was totally fine with a lot of that because I knew that, okay, this is possible. And not, you know what I mean? Like I, getting a hit, so to speak, I was like, this could happen. Yeah, you it know? becomes doable. You've seen it. You've done it. Yeah, it yeah. definitely becomes doable. You know, the reach isn't so far. So, yeah, so I... The experience I got from that entire experience in hindsight was was amazing. You know, and, and obviously that group, those guys were all great and they went on to make the entire album of that after that song. And that record sold a good three million records. And then they, of course they got their sophomore attempt and it didn't quite do as well as that. And I don't even think they got a junior attempt after that. I think they did two records and that was the end of it. When did you decide to go East Coast to West Coast and dive into LA? So I didn't move, actually, I didn't move to L.A. until I was 30. I spent a lot of time in D.C. I was doing a lot of hip-hop records as an engineer, as a mixer. I did some cool stuff. I mixed something for So So Deaf, for Jermaine Dupree, and I was, I was just kind of in. That was, that was the kind of music that was coming through there. A lot of, a lot of hip-hop, R&B stuff, vocal group stuff, um, doing remixes for like 2D Extreme, Johnny Gill's brother, and and, and things like that. And I was, I was into it. I mean, I, I love the, the music. It's a lot of great friends. And, and um, but I got to a point where, because I was also playing on, on the other side of things as a player, I was also playing on rock bands, in rock bands and stuff. And, and it got to a point where work started slowing down. I was in my mid, I think I was 27 at the time. And a buddy of mine got a job up in Philadelphia and he was up at Rough House Records. He was mastering for them. And so I would go visit him up there 
while I was up there, you know, I obviously start meeting the people that were coming through Rough House. You know, you had the Fujis that were there, obviously. And yeah. that was before the Fujis were huge, you yeah. know. Rough House had signed Criss Cross, I think, was one of their first big, you know, rap duos, if you ever remember them. Those oh, kids yeah. that, you know, that wore the pants backwards. <laughs> we got to bring that back. <laughs> it, you know, so I, I, you know, so I went up there when I was about 27. Uh, you know, the, the bottom fell out on me. It was interesting, man. It's... um. You talk about the journey. I feel like there's no quick way to get there. And this is even after having, you know, a, a hit, you know, when you're 24, it's like 23, four years later, it's like the bottom falls out and you're like, shoot, man, I need to expand, you know? So, so I went up there, I actually lived in my van at the time and uh, just kept my nose to the grindstone and I would play, I had no money, man. I I, <laughs> I had no money and, and I would, I would play on rap records like, play key bass or whatever for like 10 bucks, right? And Rough House was <laughs> right. the, one of the greatest things about Rough House Records was, was the building was up above a pub, right? So down below on the first floor was a full-on pub. So, I mean, that was awesome, but also dangerous, you know, when you're making a record there. But so I would, I would get my 10 bucks and I would spend half of it on food and the other half on beer and go sit in my van and... <laughs> ask myself what the hell I've been doing all my life so uh to answer your question sorry I'm taking a long way around no, that's but fine. uh I ended up moving some gear through some connections I had in DC I ended up moving some gear from to some artists on Rough House uh, I threw in some of my own gear got some new gear out of the deal but also made a few thousand dollars I made like three grand on the deal and I'm like I'm back right had a little bit of money so uh at that point I was doing a couple other things. I hooked up with another producer friend of mine who was working with a signed band called Everything, and I ended up jumping on that record with him and doing the programming for it and, you know, just engineering for that record. We actually set up in a farmhouse up in the Appalachian Mountains um, for a good two months, and cool. we converted the farmhouse. Everybody stayed together. It was quite an amazing experience. So then after that, he we went to L.A. to mix that record, and I, I was 29, pushing 30 at that point, and, uh, you know, you, you, you catch the bug. I was like, man, this is the place to be. You know, I just felt like it was either New York City or it was L.A., and I felt, you know, I had some family, you know, that lived in California, so I was like, you yeah, L.A. makes more sense. So when I was 30, I took my van, and I went and I got air shocks on the back of the van just so it could hold the weight. I put my B3 up on the axle of the van and everything else was keyboards in there. I ditched all my other personal stuff and I only took the keyboards, the bare essentials I needed. And I had a spot in the back of the van. If I opened up the back doors that I had just enough room, I could lay down across the back there. <laughs> and I left right around Christmas day and I left DC and I drove across the country in that old van with all my keyboards and 600 bucks in my pocket. And I knew one person in Los Angeles at the time. Actually, I take that back. I, let, I knew two people. Uh, the person I made that everything record with, Jim Ebert, and then, uh, and then a good buddy, uh, Phil Blackman, who was the guy that was mastering at Rough House, who ended up taking a job at A&M Records. So off I go. That's amazing. Was there any fear there, or was it just like, I'm going to hit the reset, I'm just going to put my stuff in the van? You must have known that that's the move that you had to make. Did you delay it? Were you fighting it? Or did you just go head first? You know, um, no, I, I jumped in. There was no second guessing the move. And I felt like I was pretty prepared to go to L.A. Like I, 
you know, you know, a couple things. The everything single that was out was in the top ten at K Rock at the time. Like it started climbing the chart, the radio chart at least. I've had some success. I was being hired as a producer, you know, to make demos and stuff for people. And I felt like, all right, you know what? I got some years in this. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to reinvent, which I've done probably four times in my journey in my career. Uh, I was, in my mind, I was prepared to go get a waiting job, waiting tables. I've never had a job, but I, I, I was like, I'm going to go get a job because I don't know anybody, number one, and just kind of put myself in the middle of it and see what happens. Yeah. So that's what I did. You know, Jim said, why don't you come, you come stay with me for a little bit, get on your feet, and we'll, we'll just go like that. We'll see what happens. And so I, I drove out there, stayed with him for a little bit. But interestingly enough, I got there right after January 1st, and I roll in, and it was January 2nd, 1997 at the time. And I'm like, I'm going to go down to A&M and visit my one friend, Phil, that, that works down there. So I go down there, and I meet everybody. And the manager goes, hey, listen, uh, we have five rooms here, and I just lost a second engineer. Would you be interested in doing a second engineering gig? And I said, what does it pay? He said, $8 an hour. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll take it. Right? Like, hell yes, I'll take it. I didn't know anybody. I was like, I needed a job. Here I am in town for 24 hours. Yeah, I'll take it. Um, at, you know, one of the best recording studios in the world, in my yeah. opinion. So they threw me into a room. And nowadays, you, you got to climb the ladder from within. I don't know if it made everybody happy that was already trying to climb the ladder, but I came in at a certain level where they just went, put me right into a room. And, and that was it. And I realized... You know, I knew how to get around the SSL and everything like that. Uh, you know, I had to learn their rooms in terms of their patching and things like that. But I realized my first day, I was working with Mike Klink, right, who did uh, a lot of the Guns N' Roses stuff, Appetite for Destruction. Yeah. And I realized that day that I knew absolutely nothing about how to make records in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> I, I, I had no idea that there was an external clicker, so you can talk back, right? So... It was hilarious. That's amazing. The uh, eyes wide open when you walk in, walk into the room. I think everybody has had that. I, I know I've had that. Everybody that comes on yeah. the shows has their one moment where they're like, "Yeah, that's when I thought I knew what I was doing," and then I watched those other people do it, and I was wrong. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's so much. I mean, back at that time too, with tape and all that stuff, man. Which I I knew oh, my yeah. way around those machines really well, and like I, I was fast at it, and. It wasn't as much that as it was just the process, you know, yeah. and the etiquette and just like the whole demeanor of about, you know, being locked into a room with somebody for for eight to 10 weeks, just how they did it in Los Angeles, man, the LA record scene, yeah. you know, it's different than if you think, you know, you don't know, you know, <laughs> so it, it's pretty crazy. It's the non-technical aspects of making a record that I think it catches people. You realize it's about being in a room with people, being personable, understanding how to communicate with people and how to not make somebody upset when you generally make them upset <laughs> or whatever it is. Navigating psychology. Yeah, no, and knowing when to speak and when not to speak and yes. just your whole, you know, your whole demeanor about how you blend in. And yeah, there's there's a lot at that level. Yeah, there's a lot. So I, I basically, you know, I'm a pretty 
quick learner in that sense. And I I went through that for a while with, with A&M, and there was a lot of opportunities that came out of that. I, you know, I think within the first three months I was there, you know, Gene Simmons was walking down the hallway. I mean, at that point in time at A&M, you got to understand, like, the, you, you had Ozzy Osbourne in Studio D, like, you know, the Chili Peppers in Studio B, like, Kiss was in Studio A. It was just, like, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. And um, Gene Simmons is walking down the hall. He's like, anybody even know how to play keyboards, right? And so one of the other seconds go, yeah, we got a guy here that does, you know, so plays Bill. So he says, I'm looking for some bell tones. You know, I need some bells, you know, like the ACDC Hell's Bells thing, you know. So can you do that? And I said, yeah, sure. Hell yes. It's awesome. So I went home that night and I programmed like three or four different kinds of bell tones so I can give him this option. Next day I go in and I'm in Studio A and I'm standing there and he's standing right next to me and the song's playing and he's he's like, you know, we want to put him here and there and here. And he goes, okay, here we go. And he's like, we're in C. And then he's like, we're going to a D. And then we're, we're going to an E. Here comes a G. I was like, I got it, I got it, you know. But uh, but I, the whole time I'm thinking to myself and I hit these bell tones, he's like, oh, yeah, that's nice. And I'm thinking... A, what the hell am I doing in here? And B, my friends are never going to believe this. <laughs> it's awesome. You know, it was the most amazing. It was one of those things, like, it was just crazy. And so there was a lot of those magical moments that kind of, that I experienced when I was at A&M like that. And I, I think I did about eight months there, and then I ended up flying the nest and going solo. That's cool. So you felt like you'd met enough people at that point, got a feel for how everything was operating and that felt like you could stand on your own and that was the better place. You know, I got to say, man, it's funny as you go later in life and you look back at your decisions you made in your career. And I'm very grateful of every decision I made. I mean, obviously I stand behind it, but would you do anything differently? And I tend to now as an adult, like where I'm at in my career, and it's a whole different business these days than it was when I was coming up. It's just completely different, definitely a lot more saturated. It's a little more commercialized, I think, to oh, yeah. for young engineers and mixers, you know? I mean, yeah. with recording schools and things like that. Now, we never had any of that stuff. I never went to a recording school before. And so it's a whole different business. So if I take the business today and I look back at my own career and the decisions I made, you know, what what I've made decisions a little bit differently back then. I don't know, you know, maybe I think I think I probably would have benefited a little bit more by staying at AM a little bit more. Yeah. Uh I felt like I might have left a little too soon, but I also wanted to play. And so I was out touring and a bit and I just wanted to focus on playing more than actual production at that point in my life. And I I had some opportunities come up that allowed me to do that. So I actually took it and I did leave and I ended up coming back multiple times as a client. But uh, I think if I would have stayed a little longer, I would have had more opportunities to work with other producers that I'm fans of. Right. Like Bob Rock or Brennan O'Brien or, you know, somebody like that. Like a chance to really get in and spend a lot more time. Yeah. But I think I was still exploring, you know. I think I was still wanting to do other stuff. Yeah. Well, it's something I talk about with a lot of my engineer guests is that like the business has changed so much and the job of engineering seems like it's changing daily and who knows really what it is. But the one thing that you'll always get if you're a kid and you get a job at one of these commercial big name studios like Henson, which is A&M Capital or wherever it is in Los Angeles, 
you can get a chance to observe your idols and the people that are influencing all the music that you listen to. And that will like blow any education away because the real world is where, where it is. And when you watch yeah. somebody do it for the first time and you get to watch how they command a room and how they work a band or how they work a console, that's the stuff you just can't, you can't get anywhere else. No, you can't. And they all have different methods and none of those guys went to school. Yeah. You know, I love, I think the school thing is amazing. I really do. But I think, in my opinion, what it has done, it is kind of, like I said earlier, it's commercialized our, our craft a little bit to the point to where kids think that it is a job. I don't look at it as being a job. I look at, from a creative aspect, being an engineer, which I find to be a creative position. I know it's, it's technical in many ways, but it is very much a creative position because there are no rules to what sounds good to you. Right. Right? And I... I feel that a producer, an engineer, a mixer, we supply a service. I mean, we're in the service industry. I don't feel like, like we, it's a job that you go apply for because, mm. you know, short of coming out of school and applying for a job at a runner today or at a studio today is you're going to be a runner. You're going to take four steps backwards from your degree and you're going to go pick up a pizza <laughs> or right. you're going to go, you're going to be a janitor in a lot of ways. Yeah. Right. And there's a reason for that, but- you know, you come out of school, unfortunately, you spend four years, you spend a lot of money now getting these degrees, and then you come out of school and you think, I'm ready for the hit. But I got to say, man, I, you know, I love the method and I love the approach, but I haven't hired anybody on my voice team over the last 10 years that has come directly out of school. Yeah. There has to be some experience from post the, the school side of it. And, uh, yeah, I feel it's a little misconstrued. I, I, you know, I had someone sending me once like, "Oh, you have the best job," and I was like, "That's that's not a job. That's a I supply that service. That's the way I look at it." You know? No, it's 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 great that there's a place that somebody can go and they can get an anchor of knowledge, but then they have to realize that all you got was the uh, I don't know how how you want to describe it. All you got was the crayons. Like you haven't made you haven't made any paintings with it. This is the worst analogy ever. That's definitely going to be an edit. (laughs) (laughs) Strike that. (laughs) Strike that. Next. Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, this is interesting. When you got into this business or when most kids actually decide like, this is what I want to do, is the end goal a hit record? Because I think that for me, it's like you would think that, oh yeah, I got into this because I ultimately want to make hit records. I mean, I want to have success. Yeah, I think so. I guess when I got into it, the thing that I've always carried with me is I wanted to be involved in the process of making music that people would hear and that it would affect them, you know, hopefully positively. I don't know if I would say that I got into it for hits, but I definitely got into it to create and be involved in something that would be heard. Right. When you left school, was there a whole list of producers accepting job applications? (laughs) (laughs) No, there was not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I came so, to LA with no job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just hope, and you hope for the best, right? You know, there's, there's, uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting, man. How are you going to get a hit? There is only one way to get a hit. You got to make music. You got to create. Yeah. If you're a producer, right? Like I, I produced a bunch of stuff in my 20s unsigned with the hopes of this is going to get signed to try to get to the next level. Uh, record companies, I could never get a gig as a producer with a signed band because 
record companies didn't know me as a producer. I hadn't produced anything that was signed. Yeah. And so I, I would have to go out post A&M. I was doing demos with bands for free. You know, there's no money in that. Yeah. And the ultimate goal of that, the payment was, will this get signed? Can I get this signed? Right. And so what was interesting is so when I left A&M, um, there was another guy that was also working at A&M. He had left. He was ended up leaving as a runner. He got picked up by Jonathan Davis. He was his Pro Tools guy. And at that point in time, Pro Tools was just kind of starting to make a splash in the industry. And so he said, hey, uh, I met Jonathan's little brother, uh, Marky, and he has a band called Edema. We need to make a demo with these guys. And I'm like, great, let's make a demo with them. And so we did. I went back to Ron Rutledge at the time at A&M, and I said, can I get four days of free studio time at Studio D at A&M? And if I get this in and I get it signed, I promise you we'll bring the record back here, right? Okay. And there you go. So we bring this band in for four days. We do three songs in three days. And on the fourth day, I mix it. And then my partner at the time, Toby, we make all these phone calls and we start getting managers and label people to come through the studio. And we just circled them through. And that's while I'm mixing everything. And we just stirred this thing up and it ended up getting a massive record deal on Arista. And then all of a sudden we ended up staying with the record. I don't know how, but... Uh, we ended up staying with the record, ended up producing that record. That record did hit, and uh, it wasn't a really huge hit, but it did hit. And uh, and there you go. And then at that point, and I was 34 at that point, was the first time that I was recognized as a producer in the industry. Yeah, by the labels. Like, by the labels. Yeah. So now my opportunity level just kind of jumped up, and now I'm at a different level of the game. That's interesting. That process... I, I know that that process existed, but that's something we've never talked about on the show. There was a point in time where that was the goal, was to demo a band and get a deal. And now I feel like that doesn't really exist anymore. Kids make their own records and labels might remix them or, or have somebody right. remix them. But what you were making as demos to get a deal then, now are turning into, those are the masters, like probably in a lot that's of right. cases. Yeah. So yeah. that's an opportunity that I feel like is gone. Is right? Do you do you see a, a comparable thing to that now? Not really. I mean, to be honest with you, it, it kind of takes its form in songwriting because songwriting and producing have kind of melded together. Do you know what I mean? Where a lot they of songwriters have. are now the producers by default, right? Yeah. And uh at back at that point, like I said, Pro Tools was was new in the game. There wasn't the home studio, there wasn't kids sitting in their bedroom on their laptops. You know, there was no Ableton or Logic or anything like that. That whole digital thing, even plugins and stuff at that point, even if you were into it, like SoftSense and stuff was so, like, early on. I wasn't even using that. I think, you know, on that Edema record, you know, I had an MPC 3000 upgraded from the MPC 60, so now I was in stereo, <laughs> which I got to love. Uh, but any manipulation on that, with those sounds was all going through like external units, you know, like the H3000 or like just external effect, yeah. effect boxes. So, so you really needed the studio at that point in time. Do you know what I mean? Now I think you got a microphone and a laptop, you're off and running. Yeah. It, the technology and the kids growing up with the technology, they've had an iPad since they were five and it's had GarageBand on it since they were five. It's like becoming one. It's you know, it's innate. Yeah, they. And actually, my my uh, 
my nephew, who's not even one years old at this point, you put an iPhone with him on FaceTime, he knows exactly what's going on. He grabs, he knows that that thing. It's just, it's in his blood. So crazy. Know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's crazy. But the technology, yeah, technology, I think, is shifting music so hard, especially over the last 10 years. I, f- I feel like there's been such a change in just the way records are made. And I'm not, I don't think it's better or worse. It's just, it's just different, you know? Yeah. It's empowering different people. I think that's cool, you know, that it, that a kid that yeah. knows nothing about yeah. music can make a hit record and it can sound so original that you can't say it sounds bad or that it sounds good. You're just like, I've never heard this before. This is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, it is funny, man. I mean, sonic uh, um, tastes have definitely changed. Yeah. And you can hear that throughout the years. You just start playing stuff from way back in the 90s to now, you know. Uh, distortion is good, you know. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, yeah. You know, small is not necessarily bad. Um, It is crazy. I had a couple questions I've been jotting down while we've been chatting. Obviously, what you've done on The Voice is such an epic undertaking. And I've witnessed your work ethic is unstoppable. And your support of your team and your guys and your band is unstoppable. Is that how you were raised? Is that something you picked up in the Marines? Because I, I forgot that you that you served. Um, where did that like drive and teamwork attitude come from for you? Well, I you know um, I owe it all to my team. To be honest with you, you're you, you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. In this case, and I feel that with this kind of workload, you know, with the voice, like I said earlier, we started out maybe sixty songs, but then we by season two, by the time you came in, we were doing one hundred and eighty songs a season, one hundred and eighty, one hundred and eighty five songs a season twice a year because been doing two songs a year or two seasons a year excuse me so you know it, first of all you got to position people on your team and i originally i started out with three now i you know 10 years later here i am i got eight you know eight people on my team so um it's not and the workload has actually started to diminish i mean it's not that the song count has gone up it's just that we've kind of figured out how to do it and we can relax more early on it was i mean even now actually for myself, I can you know speak for myself. I, I I'm up for two and a half days at a time, and we're not sleeping because there's not enough time in the in the schedule to drive home and come back. So I feel that like you you got to put guys in position that uh, you know that you trust and you let people be creative. You know you don't isolate somebody into into a full on technical position because that kind of workload will will you know will ruin you. <laughs> You'll get up and walk around the room and start screaming at people and you just, I can't get in head, I can't put these headphones on anymore and Jesus, if I listen to one more vocal, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to knock myself out or something. But yeah, I think, um, I, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I, I think, you know, a lot of guys on the, my main guy, Tim Harkins on the team, I've known him ever since the A&M days. He's one of the first, he was a runner when I first got there. He was one of the runners that was very pissed off at me that I came in hired as a second engineer. <laughs> but we ended up becoming, you know, best friends and have been for over 20 years. So he's on the team and has been on the team for 10 years now. Amazing engineer. Yeah, he's great. Uh, and a great personality, which is huge, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I think the work ethic, you know, yeah, I do the military. I think there's that, you know, never quit kind of attitude or just really digging in and uh, what are you going to do? There's no other way around it. I think you could, I could in hindsight probably 
just throw other mixers in there too and just divide it all up. I'm sure that could be it, but you know, my, part of my job is also to to make sure that we come in at budget, you know. So there's there's a lot of administrative parts to my job as well as just organizing and managing and and I always felt like, you know, it would just change kind of the status quo of how everything has been going and what people are used to hearing. So I just kind of felt like we had our thing and I would just stay in that chair and plus because we have four studios happening at one time. So it was a way for me to get the final product and do the final thing to the product before I deliver myself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sort of like sign off on it. So like a last last layer of QC. Pretty much. Yeah. Or make those final changes I wanted to make and just make sure it's all good and whatever and, yeah. and then send it out. You know, at least put my responsibility, my stamp on it in representation of our team. So that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's an amazing undertaking that you guys you guys do. The other thing I wanted to ask you is you mentioned that you've reinvented yourself. Uh, you said several times, three or four. Were there like triggers that made you want to reinvent yourself? Were there moments where you woke up and you were like, "I don't like this. I need to stop doing it." Uh, yeah, I think I kind of equate like our business a little bit to like surfing, right? So. I don't know if you're a surfer or not, but uh, so you swim out there, you're surfing, right? You catch a wave. You catch a wave. It's a break for whatever reason. You ride that wave. That wave kind of plays itself out. You swim back out. You wait for another wave. During that time, you're sitting out there on your board uh, waiting for that next wave to come through. And that time is the in-between times of... When you're having success, you're on a project, everything's going great, you have a hit, you're working it out. Sooner or later, you start to come back down that other side of that wave and you wait for that next wave to come through. It's that in-between time where you don't have work or your phone's not working or your phone's not ringing, rather, excuse me, and how you get through that in-between time because there's always going to be another wave that comes through. Eventually, you're going to, the phone's going to ring, you're going to grab another opportunity and that's going to carry you again. But sooner or later, right, you know, the, the wave follows through and you have that crest where, you know, the in-between where you got to make it to another wave. In those moments, it's how you deal with those in-between gig moments, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and in those moments, sometimes there's a lot of waves coming through. It's catching a lot of waves. But then, you know, there's those moments where I'm out there and I'm waiting for another wave and that could be a while. And uh, those are the good times to kind of use that time, even, you know, in my life today. I'll take those down moments and I'll practice a mix. I'll try plugins I've never tried before. I mean, there's, God knows there's thousands of them out there. So, you know, you got to have the downtime to go through all that stuff and go, hey, I like that or I don't like that. You can't do it when you're on the clock. You're not in, in my world anyway, you know? Yeah. So those are good times to reinvent or take some time off and work on yourself, you know, uh, emotionally. Just try to, you know, you have to be in a good place, I think, to to kind of get through the, the, the journey of this because it is up and down and it's up and down for everybody, even the most successful. Oh yeah. It's a, uh, it's a music industry is a roller coaster for everyone. That's no guarantee. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. The, the idea of, you know, of learning and practicing and, you know, finding what your potential gaps might be when you're not busy. I mean, I think anybody should take inspiration from that because you've had a long successful career and you're very busy, but the fact that you still want to learn something or grab a new skill between seasons of the voice or between other mixes, cause you're doing tons of other mixes as well. That's, you know, that's an impressive move. A lot of people would sit there and, and wait for the wave. 
Well, thank you. Yeah. I find sometimes when I was surfing a lot, and it, this is kind of funny, actually, a funny story, but some of my favorite moments in surfing is actually sitting out there on your board, not catching a wave, but just sitting out there staring out in the ocean, right? Yeah. I actually, as funny as it sounds, and I was using it as an analogy, but it actually is real in my life. I actually got the Joe Walsh gig as a player while surfing. <laughs> <laughs> I was surfing with Robert DeLeo from STP, and uh, we're sitting on our boards out there, and he said, hey, man, I just got a call from uh, Smokey that uh, Joe wants to put a band together and do a little touring for a few weeks. Asked me if I knew any keyboard players. Are you uh, interested in that? And I said, yeah, while I was surfing. There you go. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's really but good. I, it, you know, it's, it's funny, man. I, I, I actually... I'm in that moment of reinventing right now. Even though I am busy, I'm still doing the voice and still doing other things, you know, and I think this could probably be applied to everybody. I mean, dealing with the COVID year 2020 and, and everything that we've all been going through. But, you know, I'm, even as a player now, going back to basics. I think that's a very healthy thing to do. Mm -hmm. Like I will, yeah, as a player, uh, you know, practicing scales. I'm just going back and just shedding, you know, and just working on theory and, and uh I'll call old mixes up and zero them out, take all the plugins off and try to do a mix in the most simplest form, you know? And like I said earlier, like I got more plugins than I'm ever going to ever use, I'm sure. But, you know, I go through all that stuff and go, oh, I'm going to try to simplify that. Because as I see the younger generation right now and how guys are mixing and, and, you know, I have younger friends that are very successful in the business as mixers. Yeah. Uh, it blows my mind on the minimalist type of approach, yeah. you know? I, it's interesting to look back, and and it's funny because I've heard some of your other podcasts where you, um, you've asked some of your, your guests on if they feel that luck exists, if the real definition of luck, right. is, is that something that exists? And then we don't have to get far into it, but I remember it made me think. My commanding officer in the Marine Corps said, when you have preparation meets opportunity, the byproduct of that is luck. That's what luck is. Preparation meets opportunity. You have luck. That's amazing. And you had asked one of your guests if luck exists, and they had said no. And I think that in our business, the luck part probably would exist when you have everything is, all your ingredients are in, you have your song, it gets released, it gets on the radio. At that moment in time, is it going to connect emotionally with the public? Nobody knows. There's no formula for that. If there is, everybody be rich and be, you could just write a hit song by math. Right. There is, there's no rhyme or reason to what hits and connects. I think at that point you have luck, right? Right. Until you get to a point, I believe that you, you have that first thing of luck, you have a hit, you build fans, hopefully you have a second string of luck. And then at that point, everyone's just dying for you to put music out and hopefully it's good. <laughs> But I wanted to just tell you real quick, because overlooking as an adult and looking back at my career, based on how the business is today with the young kids, it's like, how you, what are you going to do? You come out of school, it's just like, where do you go, right? You can go be a runner, but even the big recording studios, like you said, is starting to diminish, right? Yeah. How do you, how do you, you know, what do you do, right? How do you prepare? So I put some thought into this last night for you, actually. Yeah, I like and it. And I want to bring this up. Perfect. Yeah. So my approach, looking back, was all about preparation meets opportunity, of course. But I like to say proper preparation, mm. proper preparation, right? 
And there's some subgroups, which I like to call like the five P's of proper preparation. And if you prepare properly, you will, you will attract different levels of opportunity. So you come out of recording school, you're 21 years old. What level of opportunity is going to come your way at that point? You're prepared. You went to school. You did your homework. You got an A, a grade A average. There's going to be a certain level of opportunities at that point. Your goal then, obviously, is you're striving to get a hit, right? Or to have some sort of success with an artist or whatever that's going to be. If you're a producer, if you're an engineer, it all applies the same. Uh, a mixer, I think it's all the same. My five Ps to proper preparation, right, are number one, positioning. You want to position yourself. And you brought this up earlier about going to a recording studio and spending time with these producers like the Brendan O'Briens or the Bob Rocks yeah. to where you can really gather the experience, right? Yeah. How much does that really exist anymore, right? So if I'm coming out of school and I want to make rock records, I'm going to position myself in a studio that makes rock records. Yeah. I'm not going to necessarily go to a studio that makes hip-hop records, right? True. If I'm a mixer, I'm going to go or I would have, in like looking back at my career, positioned myself in a studio that's, you know, where Manny's at, you know, or where Dave Pensanato was, yeah. right? Yeah. Or position yourself in a, in a room where, you know, there's big mixers, you know, even if you're going to be a runner, at least you can be around that type of thing. So I feel like the positioning of, of that preparation is, is, a, is an important aspect. And the other thing that, uh, that uh, I thought was a big P trait yeah. is personality, right? If you're in a room with somebody for eight to 10 weeks, you have to have a likable personality. You have to know when to engage and, and when not to, yeah. especially if you're a young coming up the ranks, right? Personality is important. You have to be able to, to you know, hold a, a decent conversation and at least have some sort of something, do you know? You agree with that? Oh, 100%. I mean, personality, I think, is 90% of a studio job, 10%, yeah. you know, skill set. But, uh, yeah. You could have people in the room that don't even say a word, and you're just like, get that person out of this room, Do you know? <laughs> yes. Like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, totally. It, it, if you're that type of person where you're kind of, you know, you, you don't like to be around people and you, everything is... You know, you might want to work on that. You need a little personality in this job. You need to be able to sit there and, and be likable. Yeah. You know, the other thing I thought uh, with my five Ps is perseverance. You're going to mm. get knocked down. Yeah. You're going to get knocked down. There's no doubt about it. It's, this journey is a struggle and you have to be able to get back up and you got to keep moving forward. And this possibly answers your question about how do we get through those long weekends on The Voice? You, you know what? We we have to. We don't have a choice. Yeah. You dig You dig in. Perseverance. You keep your eyes open. You don't fall asleep. Although, <laughs> I will say there are some times I was, you know, doing vocal rides where I was, my head was bobbing, you know, or whatever. <laughs> it's kind of, oh my gosh, I just fell asleep. Uh, that has definitely happened. And, uh, you know, but you just, you got to power through. And number four for me was uh, proficiency. Learn your craft. Be the best you can be, you know? Spend time practicing mixing. Spend time recording a vocal. Mess things up and put them back together, you know? Be proficient. Have someone go, man, like yourself, Travis, because your position on my team at the time, I mean, you're, you're a thoroughbred, man. You, you could do it all, 
seriously, and you just mixed something for me at season 17, which seems like such a long time ago. It was only a year ago. Oh, yeah. That does, the, the, does seem the, like a while the ago. The Katie yeah. song. Yeah, yeah. All better. Sounded amazing. I appreciate the phone call on that one. I called you in a, I called you in a sheer panic on a Friday night. <laughs> well, that was, uh, I was like, I just, I couldn't, I didn't have the time on my, you know, it's one of those last minute things. I just could not do that. I had to, I had to punt that. So you were the, you were my first choice in that. So I appreciate that. Uh, anyway, um, so I, that was, uh, my, my fifth one was patience, you know? So my five P's to proper preparation to attract opportunity is positioning, personality, perseverance, proficiency, and patience. Pa stay in the game. Don't give up. You want to stay in the game. Yeah. You're going to get knocked down. You're going to go, oh, maybe I should just go get a job. Uh, and, you know, that's always an option. But stay patient. You know, I mean, things, opportunities will continue to come. If you're, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in life, I feel like, uh, and you are great at what you do, I think those opportunities will come. And hopefully you'll listen to them because a lot of opportunities come and go and you don't even know that they're big opportunities. Yeah. Like a phone call. You know, yep. like a phone call that you don't expect to get. So that's it, man. Those are amazing. I appreciate you uh, writing this down. I mean, all those things are the things that I think a lot of these interviews will like tag one of those or, or a piece of those. So it's nice to have all those in one place. But the especially perseverance and patience, I can't really emphasize to listeners how challenging a career in, in the music industry is. It doesn't matter what part of it. And it's going to take a lot longer than you think it's going to take. And I think that you have to go into it with all, everything. We should have a t-shirt of progressions and, and Bill Appleberry uh, peas uh, of uh, success here. <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing is, is you apply those to your proper preparation and you will make progress, which is what progressions is all about, right? right? Uh, so I like that. Yeah. And I, I got to say, I got to be honest with you. I got it after I heard your, your uh, interview with uh, Corey Britt's. And who was also on my team, and you two met. That's where we at met. The time. Yeah, and you, it is, you it's your about fault that I know him. <laughs> uh, sorry about that, but uh, I've known that I've known him since he was 15 years old, man. So it, you I know, love that guy. Yeah, I do too. And in a lot of ways, uh, you know, I'm probably responsible for him even getting into the business. Um, <laughs> and I actually, I talked to him the other day. I told him about this, and I told him I was going to mention this to you. There was a moment in there where you said we met each other on the Voice, and he said. Yeah, another gig I should have never had <laughs> based on his qualifications, right? I want to tell you, I just want to go on public record to say that is absolutely false. It didn't matter to me that he didn't know how to get out of shuffle mode on a Pro Tools rig. <laughs> I, it was no technical, like, I did the technical side didn't matter because we can compensate for that with other guys, right? Like, he hated doing edits and all that stuff. But what he had for his position, which was comping vocals for me, was I knew his choices would be made on a musical level. Yeah. He would know if it was good or bad based on, you know, his the, the choices he had to make. He would pick a good choice. I knew that 100%. So, of course he deserved to be on the team. He was a, he was a very important part of the team. <laughs> That's good. I love uh, I, I love episodes that interact with episodes and guests. So now I got to get Corey back so he can respond to you uh, in like episode <laughs> well, we 50. Made, well, actually, we made a joke. I was like, you know, Travis should take call-ins. Pre-tape call-ins. That'd be good. <laughs> that would be a fun one. Yeah. So I have one last question. You probably know it's coming. What right now is your current biggest goal, either professional or personal? What's the next smallest thing you're, you're going to do to go towards it? 
Uh, well, I kind of actually mentioned it. I'm actually uh, refreshing. My goal right now is to go back to basics and remember where I came from and apply that to my creativity. That's where I'm at. We're heading into next season of, of The Voice. You know, there's, there's definitely work coming. I, I, think, I think applying what I just mentioned uh, allows me to, you know, expand on my creativity, which falls into songwriting, which falls into playing, which falls into mixing, falls into everything. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Um, my immediate goal is going back to basics and working on myself. I think you, you, you get yourself to a mental point where you could just kind of not feel stifled or... You yeah. know, pushed down by, you know, things that are going on around us. So that's that's my main goal right now. That's awesome. Especially these days. There's so many things going, you know, external factors in the world the last year to 18 months that I think pushed uh, uh, inspiration out of people. So you really have to, yeah, you know, you have to bring that back, whatever it is. And going back to what got you interested is, that's a great way to go. Before, uh, before we go, uh, is there... Uh, website or anything you want to share with anybody? Obviously, the voice will be back soon. People will be watching it. Anything? Nah, I'm old. I I I don't really do social media. I, that's one of my downfalls. I probably I probably should. Man, I I have a Facebook, but it's it's not really business oriented. Um, but uh, BillAppleberry.com. It's in the middle of being revamped, so cool. it's a good place to start. All right, Bill's website. Find him. Hit him up. Uh, Bill, call me up. Thank you so much, man. This was great. I can't even thank tell you. you how stoked I am about your five piece. I really, I really love that. It's great. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It is my pleasure, man. It's really nice to uh, to talk to you, man. I, I haven't talked to anybody this much for over a year. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, All right, man. You take care of yourself, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Cool. Okay, right. buddy. See you, man. So that's it for episode twenty-seven. Thanks so much for listening. As usual, anybody that you want to share the show with is always greatly appreciated. And don't forget to go over to completeproducer.net and join our room over there. And we'll see you next week.